0: Welcome to The Wild Story, a podcast of poetry and plants by the Native Plant Society of New Jersey. My name is Ann Wallace. I am the Poet Laureate of Jersey City, New Jersey, and I am your host. The Wild Story is produced by Kim Carrero and myself for the Native Plant Society of New Jersey. We have a special guest host for the opening interview of today's episode. Writer Anne West Moss turns the tables to interview me about my new poetry collection, Days of Grace and Silence, a chronicle of COVID's long haul, forthcoming this winter from Kelsey Books. Together we speak about my isolation and turn to writing when I fell ill at the start of the pandemic and through my long recovery but also about community and the presence of nature as a reminder of hope and resilience. We then hear from Dr. Randy Eckel, who offers suggestions for shady ground cover plants in a new installment of Ask Randy. And my co-host, Kim Carrero, joins me in conversation with Bree Arthur, a frequent contributor to the PBS television show Growing a Greener World and leader in the foodscape revolution. Bree, the plant lady, tells us about her move years ago toward foodscaping and how you might visually blend food crops into your yard. Brie also opens up about the severe health impacts she has faced from tick-borne illnesses and the preventive measures that gardeners and nature enthusiasts might take as protection against alpha-gall syndrome and Lyme disease. Thank you for joining us for The Wild Story.
1: I'm Kim Carrero, co-host of The Wild Story, and I'm excited to introduce the guests for the poetry segment of today's episode. We have a special guest host joining us today, N. West Moss, who I invited to interview Dr. Ann Wallace about her poetry. N. West Moss is the author of two books: The Subway Stops at Bryant Park a collection of stories published by Leapfrog Press, and a memoir, Flesh and Blood, Reflections on Infertility, Family, and Creating a Bountiful Life from Algonquin Press. She has a forthcoming book, Birdie, by Little Brown and Company. West lives, writes, and gardens from her tranquil farmhouse in northern New Jersey. Welcome, West. Thank you so much for joining us today and interviewing Anne.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honor. And I'm going to introduce Anne now. Although your listeners know her as co-host, I want to talk about her work as a poet. She is the 2023-2024 Poet Laureate of Jersey City in New Jersey and she's a professor of English at New Jersey City University. She specializes in composition, creative writing, and of interest to me, the literature of health and illness. She's published really widely in literary journals, but also in popular media such as Huffington Post and USA Today. Her work has often been inspired by her embodied experiences of the world. Her first poetry collection, Counting by Sevens, which was published by Main Street Rag, took on the themes of motherhood, illness, and contemporary life in America. She has a forthcoming poetry collection coming out from Kelsey Books in 2024 called Days of Grace and Silence, a Chronicle of COVID's Long Haul. In this collection, we get to see the way a poet makes sense of a global pandemic, but also how her relationship with her body and the ways that a body slowed and changed by illness can alter how we perceive the world around us. And I'm so happy to be here with you and Kim and to be talking to you about your life and the ways that you make your experiences into poetry that I find beautiful challenging but also hopeful and
0: consoling. Thanks so much West uh for one thank you for joining us here and and for letting us split the script today. It's an honor honestly
2: to have it's you. It's so know. much fun. Um I I wonder if we could maybe begin with you reading a poem from this forthcoming collection. For the House Finches is the name of the poem. I thought we might start with, it's the second poem in the collection. And I wonder if you'd read it to us and then we can talk about it a little bit. Absolutely.
0: For the House Finches. I wonder if the House Finches know they own the yard this year. The cheery redheaded finches the cardinals, sparrows, morning doves, and the large lone pigeon who began visiting last week as I fell ill to peck beneath the feeder. All of them. They can have the yard this year, I think, as I heave myself off the couch, slip my feet into my empty red boots, pull a shawl around my shoulders, and stumble outside to offer them some food.
2: It's such a great send off for the book. You know, I just have a writing question. You you have the line "all of them" on its own line, and it's its own sentence. And could you just talk about that a little bit? That choice. Sure.
0: Right. That's at the end of stanza one, and I've just listed these. This very, you know, this grouping of birds that I've been noticing out my back window, coming to uh, feed, and be in my yard. And so that all of them references the birds, but it also really references so much more than that. It references the, the world, really. It's just a, all of them. I, I just need to stay here on my couch and try to survive and recover and they can have it all, all of them can. You know, I was on bed rest, so I wasn't supposed to go out and feed the birds. <laughs> um, but I thought right. I, this is my send off to them. They can I'm going to feed them. And then that's that. It struck me
2: so much as an aspect of illness that I recognize this sense of when we are ill, we are stepping outside of the flow of the world in some way um, and perceiving it from a distance at a remove, hoping to return to it, but not always sure if we will return to it or if we will return to it and it will be the same. And um, I wonder if this is part of how you perceive illness as well, or if this is something that you were trying to convey.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote this in, this is actually from April 1st, 2020, and I was I was quite sick with COVID. I'd already been in the emergency room two times by then. Um, I'd already written about my daughter having COVID and being unable to be tested. So we were really in the thick of things, as were so many other people, but I definitely felt a remove from the world. For one, we were literally removed. We were in a lockdown, And, you know, other people were as well, but that was to keep the world, keep themselves safe from the world. We were locked in to keep the world safe from us. Um, It's a real switch, right? Um, And so I was most of my recovery took place on my on my couch in my living room. And I have large windows that look out to my backyard off my living room. Um, And I live in a city. So my yard is not big. My house is not big. But those windows give me a view on the world. The backyard, not the not the front of the house with the, the street and all that, but of my backyard. And so I really did feel like I was watching from a distance, from a remove. And it paralleled so many illnesses I've had in my life. I've had multiple illnesses, but this was, of course, very different because never before had I been a danger to others.
2: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I was reading it. Through the lens of also being isolated during the pandemic, it, as as you say, because I was trying to protect myself from the world uh, as opposed to vice versa. And in that way, this entire collection is so accessible, I think, because we did all live through something, yeah. even though we all lived through it in our own ways and and you lived through it in a way that was different from the way I lived through it. And yet we were all isolated and in a certain way, watching the world and feeling like, will the world still be there when we come back? Will it be the same? And uh, I was was not coping uh, with illness myself at the time, but I certainly remember my own illnesses and there's something so universal About illness, which we don't really talk about, but the fact is we all share the understanding and feeling of what it's like to be isolated because of illness, or most of us do. Mm -hmm. Um, I I actually did want to uh, take what you were saying about your own illnesses that you've lived through, talk about them a little bit uh, in terms of how they relate to this collection. You write very candidly about the fact that you are a long-time survivor of ovarian cancer, you have multiple sclerosis, and you were one of the nation's first long COVID patients. That's a lot. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your impulse to write about these aspects of your life? Sure.
0: Uh, So I had cancer, ovarian cancer, in (laughs) 1992, many years ago and i was graduating it was in my senior year of college so I, I was i was young i was 22 and 20 21 and 22 um during that experience and at that time i knew i wanted to make some use of that of of my illness i didn't exactly know what i was going to make art about it i'd been an art major in college and i i didn't i never really that never really came together for me um visual art in terms of my illness. But when I went to graduate school, I really I started studying the stories that women tell about breast cancer, cervical cancer, mm-hmm. ovarian cancer. But But ovarian cancer was difficult because there were very few stories about it, mainly because it's so deadly. So mm-hmm. they just didn't exist. But I wanted to see how women made sense of these illnesses that often were considered unspeakable because of the the parts of the body that they uh, that they affect you know that they impact so i definitely wanted to break against that silence um but i did that really through scholarship um without telling my own story so much but really thinking on a scholarly level about that but over time at especially when I was diagnosed with MS, I started writing about my own illnesses uh, in a personal way. And then when I, and when I became sick with COVID, when my daughter first came sick with COVID, who was 16 at the time and I couldn't get her tested and everybody said kids didn't get COVID, I thought okay. I have to start writing about this. And when I became sick, I thought I have to write poetry, I have to document this um, in some way, in a liter- in a literary way. But also I wanted to do it publicly. to So I was writing other kinds of things as well, like pieces for HuffPost. Post. But right. I, I really wanted to capture that visceral experience of, of having COVID. I never yeah. dreamed I would become a long hauler. We didn't know what that was. So I, I thought I'll be writing about this for a few weeks and I'll get better. But I didn't get better.
2: <laughs> so I wrote about it for three years. Yes. And I mean, it is, I always feel that, one of the hallmarks of great writing is that it gives us a window into lives we haven't led. And that's what this collection really does for me. Even though, again, I said, uh, we've all lived through the pandemic, but we haven't lived through it through your eyes, in your body. And this this uh, collection really takes us through it. I, I know For myself, sometimes writing is also cathartic and that I'm often writing privately about things that I stay interested in enough because they are so meaningful to me that I then write about them for an audience beyond my journal. Um, I don't know if if that's your experience as well.
0: Yeah, I wrote these poems for me first and foremost. They almost... Were a way that I documented for myself that I was still here, that huh. that I was able to step outside of my illness for a few minutes every day to record what was going on um, in my life, in the world around me. Yeah, it was a it was a kind of witnessing, bearing witness that helped me maintain
2: a sense of yeah. self and presence and survival. That's really interesting, uh, bearing witness to your own. Life. I work actually sometimes with prisoners doing writing and there is such a power in shaping our own narratives, um, even or maybe especially when they are traumatic, because we're in in the process, we're validating ourselves in a way that maybe the rest of the world is unable to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm also just interested and want to make a note of you as a visual artist first which mm-hmm. is so interesting because i feel like that's going to change the way i read your poetry i think your poetry is very visual so in in some way i think you've you've knit the two together in in very interesting ways um thank you yeah I, you know optimism th- yes this is a collection that is in one sense uh about a pandemic, how a poet makes sense of a pandemic, and it's about illness, but it's also a very optimistic collection, I found. It was full of themes I found about hope and about community, Mm -hmm. which I saw throughout your work. I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about community in your poetry and the ways that you maybe connect the concepts of illness and recovery to community,
0: Sure. Community is extremely important to me. Not only because, you know, I said before I wrote a lot of these pieces for myself, but I but not entirely. Of course. I wanted these to have an audience. And I and also I always think about myself in relation to others. So one of the reasons that even writing these poems mattered was because I knew that knew that this was not a solitary, even though I was in isolation and I knew it wasn't a solitary experience, it was a global pandemic. So what I was experiencing, I knew others were too. Even though we didn't have a name for long COVID in the beginning, I knew that if my illness was going on for weeks and then months, that there's no way I was the only one that that was happening to. So that's one level of community of writing, knowing that I was documenting something that was not mine alone. But then there's also another level of community in, well, there are so many levels of community and of hope. And, you know, the people around me, the, the city I live in, my friends, the the people I was in touch with through social media or through texting, it's hard for me to talk through most through the early month or so. The first month or so of my illness speaking was very difficult because I just didn't have the breath for it. So I didn't have many phone calls, uh, but I did text with people and uh, communicate through social media, like I said. And and that was a community that mattered an enormous amount to me. And it was reciprocal because as much as people sustained me, then people were also reaching out to me for advice as they were falling ill or they fell ill and they didn't get better. So there's that. And there were people leaving food um, at my doorstep, really, because they couldn't come into my house because I couldn't cook. I I, I just couldn't. Standing was difficult. Um, so people were dropping off food. So there's a real sense of community here. And, and there's he- the community of nature that I was watching through my my window.
2: <laughs> which, is, which is also something really rich and a through line throughout this collection. And your other po- poetry outside the collection as well. But what you were talking about with social media really takes us to a poem I was hoping we could find time for you to read called My Facebook Feed Tells Me. Is is that something uh, you can read for us?
0: Absolutely. I wrote this one in summer 2021, and I was still, I mean, I'm a long hauler. I wasn't able to, I wasn't well enough to work for nearly two years uh, due to my illness. So in summer 2021, I was still struggling and um, to recover. So this one is called My Facebook Feed Tells Me. My Facebook feed tells me that milkweed and butterflies are this year's sourdough bread and backyard chickens. As the pandemic has turned our attention from life that must be needed intended tended each day and in earnest filling solitary days, one after the other, with small tasks and gratification that is in sight but does not come quick or easy. A year in, we take a breath and make space for the wild things that pollinate and multiply when we step outside and let them be, reclaiming once manicured city slips of greenery as the early pandemic bakers and hen handlers now relax into gathering seed pods, for next year's bees and planting parsley for the swallowtail caterpillars to munch, each doing its job without ado as we learn to withdraw our heavy hand.
2: Oh, it's just gorgeous. I I underlined a lot of those last lines on my copy. Now relax into gathering seed pods for next year's bees and planting parsley for the swallowtail caterpillars to munch. It's such a great transition that the narrator goes through from sort of a dilettante trying to fill time, as we all were, making sourdough bread. It makes me laugh to have this remembered and catalogued, but then moving on to this very generative sense of continuing life. That, that final snippet of as we learn to withdraw our heavy hand, it's such a concept for me as a writer that really resonated. I'm always trying to under explain, you know, to, to under uh, enunciate in a way with my own work. And I feel like you do that so beautifully with your poetry. It's such a light touch that you bring. Thank you. I was also struck again by the way that you weave in different kinds of community here, the natural world being such a big one. And it connects to so many of your other poems as well. This idea that having a heavy hand in nature is not a very generative stance, right? It's about letting go and feeding um, and, and hoping for a better time, right? Hoping that... Planning for next spring, right? It's yeah. it's planning for springtime when we're in winter and fall or in our dormancy in a way.
0: Yeah. Uh, and it, one thing that I had read about from um after summer twenty twenty, spring and summer twenty twenty, they'd been reading articles about the environmental impact of everybody staying home, right? Right. <laughs> Right. Not driving all the office buildings, not generating, using all that energy. And, and right. just there was, there was a profound environmental impact of us withdrawing our heavy hand. And so by summer 2021, I think we were doing that in our own small ways in our gardens and in the spaces around us, continuing that lesson. And I, mm. and I say we, but this wasn't a we. This was, this is what I learned through Facebook, right? Because, I wasn't planting parsley. Well, Maybe I had parsley by 2021, but I didn't have, I wasn't able yet to really do much Mm -hmm. gardening. And I certainly wasn't gathering seed pods. Again, I I was still sick, but I saw that other people were, and I was never a sourdough bread baker uh, toasting a piece of toast (laughs) wasn't that was like the extent of what I could do um right and but I was watching everybody do these things
2: most borrowing their what they were doing yeah as a kind of hopefulness
0: yeah
2: uh, for yourself
0: and observing how the world was changing for for them for all of us, right? But in right. different ways. But, but right. the sort of collective move toward thing, different activities and how it shifted from 2020 to 2021.
2: Yes, the change and the eras of the pandemic. Yeah. There is one last poem I hope we can read uh, from your collection. It's towards the end of the collection called Lessons I Learned This Summer. And there again, this this will reiterate. I think what we've discussed a little bit. Your sense of the natural world being both metaphor and maybe reiteration for healing. Uh, It it is in itself healing, but also acts as such such a perfect metaphor. For how we, we write ourselves, how we get ourselves back into sort of homeostasis. This is from summer of 2022 section. Uh, would you be willing to read this for us? Oh, sure. Lessons I Learned This Summer.
0: One, if you hold a detested spotted lanternfly in your closed fist, then throw it on the ground, it will become disoriented long enough for you to stomp on it. But first, you must not be afraid to catch it. Wipe your shoes and do not despair. You are helping save the trees. Two, overwhelm has been transformed from a verb into a noun by self-care gurus peddling master classes and high fives online. It names the swampy place that holds you fast there in front of your screen until you find the power to log off, go outside, and listen for your own soft voice too long silenced by the din. 3. To reclaim the sanctity of a space, you must be ruthless, rip out the invasive, and replant with seeds and tender shoots that have always sat quiet and overlooked on this bit of earth. You need not do this all in one day. 4. The boldest step is the first step, small but intentional, of your feet, pointed off the crowded path into the untrampled understory. Trust the next steps to come more easily.
2: Oh, you know, uh, it, there are certain phrases in here that are so evocative. This ripping out the invasive. I always think when I'm weeding my garden, right, that I'm actually privileging certain plants. You know that that there are certain things I'm but also that is such a an a kind of a an illness concept, right? Ripping out the invasive. What are we doing with antibiotics if not trying to kill something else so that we can flourish, so that we can thrive and be alive? And, and in that way, you really hit at for me a concept that maybe I read about in Barbara King Solver perhaps um, about our being alive comes at comes at a cost. And that staying alive is in some ways a revolutionary act right that 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 saying i'm going i'm going to exist and i'm going to do what i can to exist is such a powerful and frightening and brave stance in the world which i felt throughout the book i also love that you brought in the spotted lantern fly
0: <laughs> well this was the summer 2022 when they were everywhere Yeah. First of all, thank you for bringing in Barbara Kingsolver in relation to my work. Yeah. What does it take to survive and exist? Those are questions that I guess I've I've grappled with for decades. And how do we do that? And one of the lessons that I've learned over the years is one, you can't be afraid, right? Be bold. That is something I, I have to remind myself sometimes that that survival is an, a bold act, and don't be afraid. But also, it's a quiet act, and, and it requires patience. It's really easy to become overwhelmed. I, this word overwhelm, the overwhelm, I, it really like stuck with me and also bothered me of why do we, why do we use that as a noun? We use it as a noun because so many of us are experiencing it now, the, the feeling of being overwhelmed. So it's become transformed into a noun, which right. still, still doesn't sit easily with me, but, um, but I have to acknowledge why the why of it and the right. purpose of it and the, the, the quiet sort of patience that we need to take to inhabit to move forward is something right. I was thinking thinking about a lot.
2: Which goes back to the title, I think, in some ways of, of the collection, The Days of Grace and Silence. It's such an interesting combination. But it is both a, a brave act and an act that it, in some ways is quiet, And in some ways is out of our control. I mean, I I had a friend once who said, maybe you can't control being lucky, but you can stand in luck's way. I feel like healing, there is some aspect of healing, perhaps that's out of our control, but you can stand in healing's way, right? And there's something humble, but also desirous of life, right? Yeah. Uh, In in that act. Um, We are almost out of time, but I wanted to reference uh, the final poem in the collection called The Infinity of Hope, and maybe uh, just read the last stanza myself so we can talk about it briefly. So this is, as I said, the last poem in the collection. It's called The Infinity of Hope, and in it you, you shift and directly talk to the reader and ask a question of the reader, which I love. It's very engaging. You write, so tell me what small ripples will you release into the world today on faith that you may not see what stuck things they loosen. These lines really impacted me. This this, uh, strikes me as a challenge to readers to act on faith, that their deeds might loosen stuck things even if we never see them loosened is that what you had in mind with this with this ending of your collection
0: yeah like we never know the impact of our actions but for good or for bad right we don't um well some some we do but we don't know all the impacts of our actions and and we often can't predict them and i I think it was a Krista Tippett interview I was listening to, and her guest, whose name I'm forgetting right now, said something about the impact of a smile, that if somebody smiles at you, or if you smile, let me flip it, if you smile at somebody, the impact of that smile, a, a smile at a stranger on the street, say, in passing, that smile has an impact It has an impact. You just put a period there. It has an impact. It has a positive impact, and this has now been studied that that when we smile at people, we change their day, or that moment, that hour, and most of us don't think about that. But these very small things that we do can improve other people's lives in ways that we have no idea. Um, So why not do it? And why not? take those small acts and they can be so small as simple as a smile um and and put that out into the world and see what softens or loosens as i say in the poem what softens in someone else and what ripple that has you know i thinking about ripples of yes. impact to another to another to another and it can start with it
2: can start with you it can start with each of us which is such a lovely way to end the collection and for the, the poem itself to be entitled The Infinity of Hope, this this sense of casting our lines into the future in some way, into a future we may never experience. Yeah. And it occurs to me that poetry is very much like that smile, right? It's a it's a larger act in that it takes more effort and thought. But a poem in someone's life can broaden Horizons in ways maybe we haven't even um fully explored but but certainly we can feel less alone we can feel more hope we can feel community and I and I do f- believe in the power of art you
0: know a lot of people say to me or people have said this to me over the years about I must get so angry because I've had multiple serious illnesses in my life or or the idea that I'm unlucky and yes these things are true I don't want to not acknowledge that, that I've had some bad luck with my health, but I also feel that I've been extremely lucky in that, listen, I survived COVID. It's such a basic point to make is that I am still alive and that was not a certainty at all. Mm -hmm. And it certainly was not the case for millions and millions of people. So for me to think about my bad luck is, it feels sort of wrong there. But the other piece of that is even if this weren't a pandemic where other people died, even if it were just a a solitary illness I had on my own, the other thing is you were saying something about how we don't, we can't control luck, but we can stand in luck. Say I can't control the the bad things that have happened, but I can still stand in luck's way. (laughs) I can still think about how to, how to flip that script, how to turn that around and, and focus on moving forward? And what do I do with this? And I've had these things happen. So what I can do is I can tell the story. So maybe other people feel a little less alone or find a path forward that maybe they couldn't have seen before or, and I don't mean to be so presumptuous that I'm the person that helps someone find a path forward, but all of our actions together do that for
2: people. I agree. And how better to turn something that has been painful on its head than to make a beautiful work of art out of it. You know, there's something really transformative and quite powerful about that. I see that we are out of time. I, I want to thank you, Anne. I wish we could read the whole collection of Days of Grace and Silence out loud to one another all day because it's just <laughs> so beautiful uh, I want to remind listeners that it is coming out in early 2024 and while I've read a lot of the poems I can't wait to get my actual artifact the book itself. Thank you for letting me visit with you today and thank you so much West. I I really appreciate this. This is a really lovely conversation. Really I
0: could I could talk to you forever. Well you're such a fantastic reader. That's always a
2: joy. Thank you.
0: Next up on The Wild Story, a few words from the Native Plant Society of New Jersey.
3: Hello, I'm Randy Eckle, and I am the president of the Native Plant Society of New Jersey. The Native Plant Society is a statewide nonprofit organization dedicated to the appreciation, protection and study of the native flora of New Jersey. Native plants are vital to preserving biodiversity and to sustaining a healthy ecosystem for wildlife and humans alike. This year, the Native Plant Society is celebrating its 40th anniversary, and we are pleased to have more than 1,200 members in 12 regional chapters that are doing important work across the state. We take a great deal of pride in the resources we provide for our members, including educational field trips, online webinars, plant sales, workshops, legislative resources, and much more. Please visit us at npsnj.org to learn more about the great diversity of native plants in New Jersey and about how you can become a member of the Native Plant Society of New Jersey and play an active role in supporting native plants in your community, region, and state. And here's another episode of Ask Randy on the podcast. Let's see what question we've got this week. Margaret from Jersey City says, I have been enjoying the Wild Story podcasts. Thank you, Margaret. They have been an interesting format and are very informative. I would appreciate a little advice about ground cover in my front yard. I live in Jersey City and have typical front yard issues. I share the front yard with my neighbor. We both have large sycamore trees on the street in front of our houses, and there's a beautiful red maple in the yard itself, so the yard is covered in shade for the majority of the year. Although the foundation plants are doing well, I can't seem to grow anything in the dirt area. We had sod planted, but that didn't work out. I believe the ground is too dry and silty. I was looking for a plant that only grows to three to six inches so that no mowing would be required and that could stand up to light foot traffic. The last item on my wish list is that the ground cover is non-toxic to dogs and cats. I believe that possible plant toxicity to house pets might be a welcome topic when suggesting plantings in general. What a great question, Margaret. I understand your question entirely. I've seen those dirt areas under trees where people have struggled to find something to put there. Good news. There are things that you can plant that are safe for cats and dogs that will look good and will grow in that space. And as a bonus, they're native to New Jersey. The first one I would suggest is native violets. New Jersey has quite a few different species of native violet. As a matter of fact, the state flower, is a violet, Viola sororia, the common blue violet. They'll bloom in the spring. They'll support great spangled fritillary butterfly caterpillars. They're non-toxic. As a matter of fact, they're edible. And they will withstand light foot traffic very well. And they're beautiful. There's quite a variety of them to choose from in violets, but I would recommend either the common blue violet or possibly the confederate violet or the magenta form that you sometimes see. If you mix several different species of violet underneath that tree, you'll actually be able to have flowering violets in the spring for several months, which is a real bonus. Another possibility would be pussy toes. Now pussy toes are going to want part shade. So I'm not sure exactly how deep your shade is. If it's very very deep shade, it might be too deep for pussy toes. But pussy toes only grow the leaves only grow to be about 3 inches tall. They're very very short. Uh, there's several different species that are native to New Jersey. There's the plantain leaf pussy toe, howls pussy toes, parlins pussy toes. Uh They differ slightly in the size of their leaves, but they're very short. Uh, They will take some light foot traffic and they have sort of a silvery cast to them. They're actually a really elegant ground cover. They're also host to the American Lady Butterfly. They're actually one of the only hosts to the American Lady Butterfly. So you can put those in that space and host some butterflies as well. Now, if this area is very, very shady, you might want to think, about Sedum ternatum. Sedum ternatum is a native succulent to New Jersey. It's called wild stone crop. It grows literally only about two inches tall. It will take some foot traffic. It's going to be a little bit more delicate than the others. But the great thing is, since it's a sedum, if a piece breaks off, it'll just reroot where it's lying. It doesn't really matter if you break it up a little bit. They will creep very well and spread in complete shade, uh, very tolerant of dry shade, and might do very well in that space. A couple other possibilities would be Virginia creeper. Now, Virginia creeper is a vine, but it can also be used as a ground cover. I would discourage it from growing up the trees. Uh, a lot of people like the look of vines growing up trees, but it And at the end of the day, it's not very healthy for the trees. But you can let it run as a ground cover over the ground. Uh, It works very well. It turns bright red in the fall, which is very pretty. It can produce a bit of a tripping hazard. So it might be not ideal for the foot traffic, depending on who's walking across it. If you're worrying about the dogs and cats, they'll run through it just fine. But if you're going to be walking across it, the vines can be a bit of a tripping hazard. But it does make a nice ground cover. A couple other possibilities, and it will take some light foot traffic, is there's a plant called green and gold, which is just now starting to be used more in our area. It is naturally native a little further south from here. Uh, The scientific name is Chrysogonum virginianum. But with global warming, we've been noticing a lot of people have been starting to use this uh, a little bit north of its natural range, and it overwinters does very well in New Jersey, and it blooms for a very long time. It does grow to be about maybe six to eight inches tall, so it might be a little bit taller than you were initially looking for, but you might be able to find a pocket for it there in your front yard in that deep shade. It'll take the dry, um, and it's really quite elegant. It's a nice southern ground cover that is now starting to be used more and more in New Jersey. As we look more and more, honestly, to some Of the plants that are native just slightly south of us as global warming is changing really what our gardens and our weather is starting to look like the last one i'm going to mention which is probably the one that will take the least foot traffic but it is an elegant ground cover for deep shade is dwarf crested iris iris cristata it produces these cute little fans of leaves It only grows to be about six inches tall and has beautiful, beautiful blue flowers in the spring. It is this tiny, tiny little iris. But at the end of the day, for foot traffic, no toxicity to dogs and cats, I would go with violets. The state flower of New Jersey, you can't beat it. Thanks again for your question, Margaret. Everybody keep sending in your questions to Ask Randy. I'm enjoying answering them immensely, and I hope you guys are enjoying the answers.
0: Thank you to Dr. Randy Eckle for another installment of Ask Randy. If you have a question for Randy, send it to us at Wildstory at npsnj.org and tune into upcoming episodes to see if Randy answers your question. In our next segment featuring Bree Arthur of the Foodscape Revolution, my partner Kim Carrero will join me. In addition to working with me as co-producer of The Wild Story, Kim is a Rutgers University certified master gardener and co-leader of the Hudson County chapter of the Native Plant Society of New Jersey.
1: I'm looking forward to this conversation with Bree Arthur. She is a best-selling author of the book Foodscape Revolution, a widely known gardening personality, and a longtime contributor to the Emmy Award-winning PBS television show Growing a Greener World. So Brie, you're an
0: award-winning horticulturalist, landscape designer, and best-selling author. You're also one of the most nationally recognized women in the horticulture industry. At what point did you decide that gardening was going to be your career, not just a hobby?
4: I think somewhere in my teens, something must have clicked. And I decided I really enjoyed the artistic expression and the to some degree, instant gratification of working in the yard and and accomplishing something, you know, whether it was mowing the lawn or trimming bushes. thanks to um the influence of four h and some of the extension master gardeners. Um, they were like, "You know, you really enjoy horticulture. Maybe you should consider studying it in college. And you know, honestly, if they hadn't said that, I don't think that I would have known that there was an entire career path that involved growing plants for a living, that I'm ever so grateful that I was introduced to the passion of of gardening and landscaping as a child so that I can, you know, look back and think, those are my happiest memories growing up. I think 4-H is one of the most important programs that children can be exposed to, hands down, and I think Cooperative Extension deserves endless gratitude and appreciation for the services and education they provide. There's nowhere else that you can get information about agriculture, horticulture, conservation, ecology. Um, Extension is, in my mind, I think it's the most important public service that we have in the United States. Um, And I would just wish that every child could have the opportunity to participate in their programming. Um, It absolutely transformed my life. Whether you choose horticulture as a career, having that exposure as a child will instruct you to enjoy this hobby as an adult. Every child that Extension can influence at a young age is going to make them better stewards of the earth later on.
0: Yeah, there's such a direct connection between those two things getting that hands-on experience as when you're young and the sense of responsibility and stewardship that you have later in life, for sure. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your book, The Foodscape Revolution, which is about finding creative ways to make space for food and beauty in the garden. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what foodscaping is? What is this revolution?
4: Well, I always laugh because it shouldn't be a revolution. It should just be logical. It should just be the way we garden. I mean, the bottom line is food crops need exactly the same care as flowers. So why would we segregate them? And particularly for those of us living in the suburbs, you might not have enough room to have a isolated vegetable garden, you know, it it just, that isn't always how properties work. And it was, gosh, in 2006, when I bought my first house in the subprime mortgage market, which anyone with a heartbeat could get a mortgage, even though you really didn't have enough money to pay for it. And I found myself in a situation where I just couldn't pay my bills and also grocery shop. I mean, I was just really poor is the bottom line. You know, I had a full-time job as a plant propagator and I just wasn't earning enough money. And I started to grow vegetables, you know, in my, in my home garden and ran into a scuffle with my homeowner association. And I realized pretty quickly that I couldn't afford to be in a fight with my HOA because I didn't have enough money to grocery shop. I really didn't have enough money to pay HOA fees. So instead of fighting with them, I joined the board and I realized pretty quickly their concerns about vegetable gardening were well-founded. We are actually very, very messy vegetable gardeners as a whole in this country. When I started integrating my vegetables into my landscape versus growing in the traditional way of raised beds, I ended up winning yard of the year. And it inspired all of my neighbors to want to include, you know, some broccoli or some okra or, you know, whatever favorite vegetable they had right alongside their hydrangeas Mm -hmm. and, you know, their holly hedges. And I realized in that moment how This needed to be something that other people could be empowered by because we have a lot of HOAs in America and there's a lot of people that are afraid to experiment with gardening as a result of the rules that their HOA impose. And so I really wrote the book to try and shed some light on the idea that it's not the vegetables themselves it's the way you grow the vegetables, it's the lack of design, the lack of aesthetic consideration. And when you just flip that a little bit, vegetables are actually really beautiful. And so I love my the tagline of you can grow beauty and bounty together. And I I think that there's a lot of opportunity for people to take better advantage of the land they have just by looking at their existing landscape beds and figuring out how they can weave in a handful of things that they enjoy eating and cooking.
0: I wanted to shift our attention now a little bit to your native perennial garden at your home. Could you tell us a little bit about those plants that you have growing? If we were there, what would we see?
4: oh well this is very exciting (laughs) so about a year and a half ago we had the opportunity to buy the house next door and it was a blank slate literally no garden has ever been there and we live in a former tobacco field so this is pretty depleted land and for my for the garden that we live at um which is a, a full foodscape, i've had to do a lot of soil improvement because vegetables need much richer soil than the depleted sand that is what our native soil is. So when we purchased the house next door, I was like, oh my gosh, this is my opportunity to really expand my plant palette and learn about plants that I don't have a lot of experience with. I am a woody specialist, so I'll confess that my priority when starting the garden was to get a a substantial layer of trees and shrubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just think that they're the bones of every garden, uh, but every day there's something new to see. So, you know, native magnolias, I mean, they blow my mind. They're so tropical looking. They have these huge leaves. You can grow natives and they're beautiful and they're dynamic. Overall, I am on the native bandwagon big time. I you know, I wish that this this movement would have been where we are now 20 years ago. So that my career in the nursery industry, I would have it would have had more crossover.
0: Mm, good point. But I'm
4: so grateful that I get to experience it now as a home gardener. Yeah. Endless opportunities for nurseries to put more natives in their inventories. Absolutely.
1: And that's something that I know here in New Jersey we're all working on and thinking about.
4: It's almost unavoidable now when you walk through downtown Raleigh, all of the public plantings are natives and they have really good signage to be able to educate just the random person walking past, maybe going to jury duty. You know, that these plants are local and this is why they're here. This is what they support. When you see it demonstrated that way, you're more likely to then be like, oh, that's what I want in my yard. Now the challenge is getting it to be normalized at garden centers and box stores, which I think are certainly the weakest link in in horticulture. I've always been very critical of box stores. They could be such an influence in, in a positive way if they could just change their model like by 5%. I wanted to ask
0: you about all of the travel that you've done around the world. I know you've given talks about gardening in many places. Could you just tell us a little bit about where your work has taken you? Because you've certainly got a larger audience than just uh, you know locally. You've, you've got a broad audience. And where has that taken you?
4: As a result of working with Joe Lample on growing a greener world and then writing my first book, The Foodscape Revolution, Again, extension master gardeners are who supported my journey traveling through the country, being at you know local master gardening events, state events, international master gardeners, and I've had the opportunity now to speak in forty-three states. I've done almost twenty-five hundred presentations. Um, it's it's been an incredible experience. I've been able to, to travel through Europe and hopefully inspire people, again, to incorporate vegetables with their ornamental plant. So it's been really instructional for me to have the experience of traveling places because gardening is so different everywhere you go. Every, every place I visit makes me a better horticulturalist. Yeah. It certainly, you know, just extends... Your well roundedness and your appreciation for what plants provide. Mm-hmm. And have you been to the New Jersey, New York area? Oh, I have deep roots with New Jersey. I was involved with the Bullock School Project, which is out of Glassboro, New Jersey. Um, we did that in 2015, where we converted an elementary school into a foodscape and it their municipality picked up on it, and um, the Department of Agriculture got involved. And actually, the teacher Sonia Harris, who I highly recommend you all get in touch with, you know, she won like the Agriculture of the Year award from this project. And it's a really great nonprofit that connects um, curriculum and gardening specifically to elementary schools, but also into middle and high school curriculums. So I've been coming to New Jersey on a regular basis since, since 2015. I consider it to be my second home. You recently posted
1: on your Instagram that you were bit by the Lone Star Tick.
4: Can you walk us through what happened with all of that? Yes. <laughs> it's a, a long journey, actually, much longer probably than I insinuated on Instagram. I moved to North Carolina in 2002. And in 2003, I became violently ill. And I will say at the time, I was a vegetarian. So I wasn't even eating meat, but I was consuming dairy um, unknowingly. And in 2003, AlphaGal hadn't been identified. It did not have a name. And doctors at that time were very skeptical of of tick-borne disease. Even Lyme disease wasn't being taken seriously. And I was sick all the time, like every day. Went through a myriad of tests. And at the end, they were like, we don't know what's wrong with you. Maybe we should remove your spleen. And I was like, "Uh, I don't think that you're just gonna start taking organs out if you don't know conclusively what's the problem. And um, I went vegan (laughs) and I stopped getting sick. And then I fast forward to the early 2010s, I mean sometime between 2008 and 2012, I was working in Chapel Hill still at the in 2003. I was living in Chapel Hill, and for those of you in the know, Chapel Hill is actually UNC Chapel Hill is where Alpha Gal was identified, and really where the world's leading expert is on this disease. So fortunate to have them local. This is certainly something that is really big here. There's there's almost 100,000 people in, in Orange and Chatham counties here in Central North Carolina that have been diagnosed with alpha-gal. So it's certainly, we're kind of in the epicenter of it. And I was reinfected. And at that time, I had reintroduced dairy and was eating a little bit of meat, not very frequently, but would occasionally have some bacon with a BLT, And I started getting violently ill again. And remember, up to this point, I had not been diagnosed with alpha-gal. I didn't know what what was going on. But I did know a lot of people who had this mystery meat allergy, including all of the people that I worked with at Camellia Forest Nursery. And in fact, Cliff and Kaimei Parks, the owners, the original owners of of Camellia Forest, actually got this disease in the mid-90s. And so they lived a long time before they got a diagnosis. And so I knew from their experience that my diet was going to become very, very limited because once you've been infected multiple times, the reaction just increases exponentially. Um, I was finally officially diagnosed in 2018 and they gave me an EpiPen. At that time, I was still able to digest some dairy By 2021, dairy was starting to cause anaphylaxis. So it's been been entirely removed from my diet, which has been incredibly complicated. Americans are in love with dairy because it's delicious. I get it. Um, It's really hard to eat at restaurants because butter and lard, tallow are added to everything. I've been encouraged, especially recently with the New York Times article that came out that I think they did such an incredible job clearly identifying the various different tick diseases of which are not the same. And sometimes people have an overlap of like Lyme and alpha-gal or down here, Rocky Mountain spotted fever is relatively common, but they're not the same disease and there's different treatments for everything. And really until that New York Times article came out, I think that it, there was just a cloud of confusion. And I think the medical industry, there's still enough doctors that are skeptical about tick-borne illness, saying that it's over-diagnosed and whatnot, that People kind of think you're making it up. And I will say that in 2018, what motivated me to finally go and get a conclusive test uh, was a friend telling me that my food allergy seemed like an eating disorder. And it really offended me Hmm. uh, because, first of all, I don't think eating disorders are something that should be made light of. Right. And then certainly when someone is, you know, doubled over, throwing up right after they eat or worse, uh, you know, kind of blacking out, which is kind of what would happen to me. My blood pressure gets so low that I just lose consciousness. It shouldn't be diminished in, in any capacity. Like we we should be looking at this as something that likely is going to impact more people in the future. And uh, we should take it seriously, and, and and frankly, we should be proactive and accommodate it now so that everybody could be more used to it. I'll never forget that comment, and mm. it it's stuck with me, and it does sometimes feel like an eating disorder when I'm having to explain at great length to a restaurant why I absolutely cannot have butter contamination. The more we talk about it, the better the awareness will be, the better it will be 10 years from now for a population that is experiencing it and hopefully it won't be as challenging. Well, we
0: are happy though to see, despite that and the limitations it's placed on your life in so many ways, we're happy to see that you're still out in the garden and you're still doing the things that you love but I am guessing that you must take a lot of tick prevention measures at this point. What advice can you give to other people who are out working in their gardens, out hiking, out in nature, What, or just kids playing? You know, What do we do when we're outside to prevent ourselves from alpha? Wear
4: bug spray. Right. First and foremost, wear bug spray. Wear <laughs> real bug spray. Uh, Lone Star ticks are actually the primary tick that we see here in central North Carolina. And uh, because we have so many deer invading our gardens, the lone star ticks are are in your garden every day. Um, so even if you were to do like a, a general pesticide spray, which I don't recommend because that influences all of the beneficial insects as well as the problem ones, uh, you're still not going to totally eliminate the, the tick accessibility that they have to your garden. Um, the easiest solution is to spray yourself you see the less skin you have exposed the less likely you are to 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 have one that actually attaches to you you know it's one thing if they're just walking on you that doesn't transmit any of the diseases but once they make contact and you know are are actually attached to you you run the risk of any number of different diseases and None of them are to be taken lightly. Uh, I had Lyme disease, which actually I blamed Lyme, the the medicine for curing Lyme. I blamed that for a long time on my inability to digest food well, because I thought that the antibiotics had disrupted my biome. Mm -hmm. Uh, Turns out it was a different Mm tick-borne illness that was really causing that. But, you know, none of the tick-borne illnesses are are they you you can't ignore them um the longer you wait to deal with them the harder your life will be and so if you're feeling under the weather and you know that you've had a, a tick that was attached you should go to the doctor so what are some of the symptoms that people should be looking out for well originally you usually it starts with like hives for me i would get a low-grade fever and i would get like acid reflux symptoms where I would just have like endless water coming out of my mouth. And, uh, you know, this was early on, they were like, Oh, you need Nexium, you need Prilosec. And it wasn't, it wasn't acid reflux that was causing it. So none of those medications helped. Um, sometimes people will get, um, for me, like intense stomach cramping, vomiting, diarrhea, and, you know, those are all really easy to misdiagnose. The last time I ate ice cream, <laughs> I have a lot of memories of, like, the last time I ate something, generally because it was followed by an extreme reaction. Uh, I thankfully was, I had eaten an ice cream cone, and within about 15 minutes, I was driving on a highway, and um, I was lucky to get into a rest stop and, within a minute of pulling into that rest stop i was unconscious for 2 hours just mm. completely passed out sitting upright in a pickup truck you know didn't even get the opportunity to like bend the seat back a little to be more comfortable full sun uh, you know just i had no ability to to be able to stay conscious as a result mm. of, of that dairy experience mm um and you know i was far enough along in in my alpha gal journey by then that i knew what it was but uh, you know it can it can hit you in really unusual ways and so if you're having any kind of difficulty digesting food in general there's something wrong period and either find a doctor or find a holistic practitioner who're probably going to be more likely to listen to your concerns Mm-hmm. um, and, and take you seriously, get a, get a full allergy panel, see what comes up. Um, the sooner you do it, the better your life will be. I don't want anybody to go through 20 years of this. Like I did. Absolutely. Um, it's, yeah. I look back to all of this time and, and I just think like how much easier my life would have been if I had just known, if I had known earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think talking about it is really, really important uh, because, well, the more normalized it is, the better it'll be for everybody.
0: And, and you have a platform that will make an impact. The fact that you're sharing your journey, sharing your experience, this, this, this will help people. So we're I'm really grateful that you're that you're speaking with us today about Alphagol and that you've shared your experience through your platform because people don't know. It's not widely um, publicized written about, talked about, as you said, the medical profession itself is not, is not sharing this information or not as up to speed as we would like. So every bit helps. Every advocate helps. So thank you so much. I do think this will make a difference for our listeners and for your followers and, and have a larger impact going
4: forward. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. And I do want to say having Alpha Gal makes me appreciate my growing vegetables so much more Mm. more now than ever my Mm. garden feels like it empowers me Mm. and you know I I think that when you put the effort towards gardening having that feeling of accomplishment is the thing that drives you to go outside when it's 98 degrees and drag hoses around because you know it actually is making a tangible difference in your day-to-day And that's the silver lining of Alpha Gal for me is, you know, being able to feel a little bit more self-sufficient as a result of the act of foodscaping. We have been talking to Brie
1: Arthur. And if you want to continue to follow Brie's journey, you can do so at BrieGrows.com. and her social media and her YouTube channel are Brie the Plant Lady.
4: I thank you so much for inviting me today. This has been such a treat.
1: Thank you, Bree. We really appreciate
0: this conversation with you. We would like to thank today's guest host, Anne West Moss, who is author of Flesh and Blood, Reflections on Infertility, Family, and Creating a Bountiful Life, published by Algonquin Press. And thank you also to Bree Arthur, Bree the Plant Lady, who is author of The Foodscape Revolution and of Gardening with Grains," both published by St. Lynn's Press. The Wild Story: a podcast of poetry and plants is produced by Anne Wallace and Kim Carrero. It is an independent project of the Native Plant Society of New Jersey, a statewide nonprofit organization dedicated to the appreciation, protection, and study of the native flora of New Jersey. We would like to thank our team. Dr. Randy Eckel is president of NPS NJ. Our sound editors are Valerie Forrestall and Lynn Berry. Our theme music is composed and performed by Tara Sullivan. Our closing music is "Life Can Be Sweet" by Kate Jacobs. Our logo artwork is created by Vicki Katzman illustration. Our logo design is by Monty Kim and web support is provided by Michael Jacob and Kazis Varnalis, Vice President of Membership for NPSNJ. Learn more about The Wild Story and about the Native Plant Society of New Jersey at npsnj.org and follow us on Instagram at Native Plant Society NJ. Take my baby to the woods, oh man. Teach you the names of the
3: should know the blood root from the
0: virgin's bower take my baby to the field old man teach her the call of the red
2: wing and middle love before it's dark so she knows it's for her they're singing oh, oh, oh. If you should go